All right, kids are living with Mrs. Haley, Mrs. Haley and Haley was just talking to me, and Mrs. Cindy. So it's okay with your parents, they're going to have a special treat in the back, and they're making some preparation for later on after the service. Again, we want to say happy Mother's Day to, to mothers here today, and as we celebrate. Yeah. Aren't you thankful for moms? For the mom that God put in your life? We have a wonderful God who designed life and designed um, families in an amazing way, and one of the most incredible gifts that He's given to us is our mothers. As we consider relationship today and how God has invited us into relationship, I think there's this beautiful picture of um, when when God put these women in our lives, uh, they've have a better ability most times than, than us men of, of growing that relationship with our children and, and nurturing our children. And so uh, in God's amazing design, he gave, us, he gave us our moms. And so I'm thankful for that. Well, if you would join me as we go to our God in prayer, let's, um, let's seek his face. Father, we, we echo the words of the psalmist. It would be better to be a doorkeeper in your house. Um, we'd rather do that than dwell among the tents of the wicked. Uh, you are a good God. And, and even the, uh, the lowest of positions in, in the tabernacle or the temple, the lowest positions of being in your presence, just being someone who's ordinary and not seen and has the, the least amount of responsibility, what a pleasure that is. What a glory that is to know You. To be in relationship with You. To be able to enjoy Your presence. We would rather have that than all the riches in this world and to, to embrace all that the tents of the wicked offer to us today. You are good and we thank You. Father, You are good and You've given us mothers. You've given us life. You've given us breath. You give us sunshine in the spring, and above anything else, you've given us your Son, Jesus Christ. And we give you praise, not only for your design in this life and your design in nature, your design in families, but Lord, your design in salvation. We thank you that you brought to us Jesus Christ, that he came and he lived and he, he died in our place. We thank you for the eternal life that you give to us in him. We thank You for Your Spirit who indwells us and leads us. And Father, it is our prayer that now as we turn our attention to Your Word and as we consider this relationship that You've called us into that You desire with us, I pray that Your Spirit would help our minds to understand these truths. You'd soften our hearts and that He would lead us into truth now. It's in Your name we ask this. Amen. Well, this morning, what we're going to do, um, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 here in a little bit, but we're going to set the stage a little bit for what, what uh, Hebrews is, is, is doing. As we've been looking through this amazing book, uh, we just finished a section in Hebrews chapter 8 which talks about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The old arrangement that God had made with Israel and this new arrangement that God, this new covenant that God has made with them. And I'd like to, to read the end of that and set the the tone for where we're going, and then we're going to do a bit of a walk through the Old Testament. We're going to look at, at uh, how God has designed 
us to be in relationship with Him. And we can see that throughout the entire Old Testament from the very beginning of creation all, to the, way, all the way to when Jesus came and, and gave Himself and sacrificed Himself on the cross uh, and, and on into eternity as we enjoy that relationship with Him for those of us who are His people. And then as we, after we do that, we're going to come back to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at the first 10 verses and we're going to see a particular section of the Old Testament that Hebrews is going to comment on and walk us through that I think points again to this idea that God invites us into His presence. First, join with me as we look at the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 8, which we studied last week. Most of this is a quote from Jeremiah as he talks about the new covenant and the particular aspects of the new covenant that we enjoy now today, even as we, as we await for our Lord's return. He says in Hebrews 8, verse, starting in verse 8, For he finds fault with, with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I, when I took them by the hands to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not... Teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You know, throughout the uh, Old Te and New Testaments, God has made Himself known in His creation and to His creation. Uh, one of the concepts that comes to the forefront throughout the Scripture is this idea of relationship. Sometimes more aptly, most aptly, just portrayed in prepositions that we find throughout the Scripture, like in and with and before. And this divine relationship that God initiates with His creation is visualized most vividly in verbs such as walking with, knowing, dwelling among, and very notably the often repeated promise that He makes all the way throughout Scripture, I will be with you. Many other themes in the Old Testament extend from the relationship between God and man. We, we see the themes of sin and grace explain the broken relationship and God's pursuit of, of mending it. Covenant, which we've been talking about in Hebrews. Very important concept in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, covenant and, and promise, two of the most important words in the book of Hebrews. They explain the stipulations and the expectations within the relationship between God and men and how that relationship functions. Blessings and curses convey the result of obedience and disobedience within the relationship. And connected to all these themes and, and many more, God's relationship with man, it dominates the pages of both the Old and the New Testaments. And so in preparation for Hebrews chapter 9, I'd like us to consider this concept of God initiating relationship with mankind as it's shown throughout the Bible. Uh, we're just going to hit some of the highlights, but watch how this theme grows throughout God's revelation to man. Let's, let's start with Genesis. Watch how God emphasized the relationship through blessing. In the very prologue of, of the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, God is established 
as a creator who rules over all of his creation. Man, both male and female, uh, serve in a representative relationship, as it will. We're God's viceroys, God's representatives here on this earth to rule uh, as his representatives. And man, both male and female, are created in God's image. And, and man is blessed with the right to fill the earth, to subdue it. And so God creates man, and He puts him in the most ideal circumstances where he has to serve God obediently in the relationship that's established from the very beginning with the Lord. But the Lord also created man to enjoy the blessing of companionship. A companionship and a relationship with his wife who would complement him. Now, as we continue through the very first pages of Genesis, we find that that relationship, however, was, was challenged. And that relationship with the Creator was broken. And we know that sin severed our relationship with the Creator. Completely broke it. Not only destroyed the relationship, it not only made us, it not only ruined the friendship that we had, but it made us enemies with the very one who created us and loved us and had designed us to walk in relationship with Him. But right at the beginning of the Bible, after um, this relationship was severed and, and it was destroyed, uh, it destroyed the blessings experienced by man and the woman in their relationship with the Creator. But right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, God demonstrates by, um, excuse me, God demonstrated grace by making provision for the man and the woman. He made provision for a restoration of that relationship and the blessing. Genesis continues the story of God's blessing and promise in spite of mankind's violent rebellion. And in the midst of sin, there was still a remnant who by God's grace continued in relationship with God as they called on the name of the Lord. We find phrases like they, they walked with God. They found favor in God's sight. And throughout the, the early history of mankind, we find this remnant that continues in this relationship until God comes to this one man in Genesis chapter 12 and God's blessings come to all men but they began to be focused throughout, uh, through his relationship with one man and his descendants after him. And so through Abraham, whom God had chosen, God promised to bless, remember the covenant? All, all the families of the earth through Abraham and through his descendants. And so therefore, he makes a covenant regarding his family. God makes a covenant with Abraham regarding the land that he's going to give him and the blessings that, that are part of that Abrahamic covenant. We considered that last Sunday, what that Abrahamic covenant was. And, and then throughout Genesis, we see that God continues that relationship and, and He comes to each one of His descendants, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the twelve tribes of Israel. And of course, the descendants of Abraham, they became slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. But God remembered His relationship with them. And He delivered them as promised. The God who promised Isaac and Jacob that I will be with you, He assured the same promise to Moses. Remember, Moses was at the, at the burning bush and, and, and asking God all these questions. And, and God commands him, go back to Egypt. I'm going to use you to bring my people out of the land of Egypt. And God makes a promise to Moses just as He made to Abraham. He says, I will be with you. He introduced Himself by name. And he promised to Abraham, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt. And he became, God became their salvation. After they left Egypt on the journey to Sinai, however, we saw the people tested. 
and they grumbled. And so God again makes Himself known to the Israelites through mighty provisions that, that they might, and, and here's what He says in, in Exodus chapter 16, that they might know that I am Yahweh your God. And furthermore, uh, foreigners, people like Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, they came before God. And also they came to know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. And so at Mount Sinai, God established a covenant relationship with Israel. That they would be His special possession out of all the nations. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And at Mount Sinai, they, they, as we considered another one of the covenants last week, they ratified a covenant with their God, with Yahweh, the Lord. And it was there that Moses received instructions for a tabernacle so that God would reside among the Israelites and for the priesthood so that they would know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so, from this point, it seems, as we finally come to this part of the story, it seems that the conditions and the circumstances are, are ideal. God is dwelling among His people. And He's delivered them from Egypt. He's established a covenant with His people in which He is their King and, 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 and they are His people. And these people had every intent to obey Him. God had every intent to bless them, to protect them, to make His face shine graciously on them. And the details of the law were being carried out as we open up the book of Numbers and we see in the first ten chapters that the law is being fulfilled. And even Yahweh Himself is dwelling among them. And He was leading the camp in His presence in a cloud of fire. But then the Israelites, we read in chapter 11 and chapter 12, the Israelites rebelled against God. And as we witnessed early, Hebrews is going to deal with this concept a lot and, and how they fell away from Him. But they, they rebelled against Him. God's anger burned against them. Even though He's a God who is slow to anger. Even though He's a God who is abundant in kindness. When the nation responded in unbelief and they failed to enter the land, God responded in anger and He forbid that entire generation from entering the land of promise. A whole generation tested their relationship with Yahweh, and, and thus they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And they died in the wilderness. But finally, a new generation rises up, and that new, new generation is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that new generation comes to the land of Canaan. And they're ready to inherit the, the promise that their forefathers have been given. And the covenant was renewed and the, the same promise given to Moses was given to Joshua. And jo God says specifically to Joshua as well, I will be with you. It's this constant phrase that God continues coming back to with Abraham and Moses and Joshua and with us. I will be with you. I will have a relationship with you. And throughout Israel's history, we see Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Throughout the prophets, we see a contrast. There's a contrast between two different kinds of people. Those who turn away from Yahweh. And there's examples given like Eli and his sons, Saul. Those who did not know the Lord. And, and they are contrasted uh, with uh, those that, that do know the Lord. And so there are those who turn away from, from God. And they are distinguished from those who have chosen such as who were chosen, such as Samuel and David, who obeyed him, and thus Yahweh, again, and we're told, was with them. 
And as promised in Deuteronomy, God provided a king. And this king would reign over the people as God's representative. And it's David who realizes that his elevation to the throne was for the sake of God's people. Yahweh makes a covenant, and we saw again another covenant that God makes specifically with King David, what we call the Davidic covenant. And God makes a covenant with David to establish his house and his kingdom, to have a relationship with David and with his family, to bring blessings on and to fulfill the promises to his people. One of the greatest prophets who came centuries later was a prophet named Isaiah who so eloquently showed us that this relationship as it's exhibited through salvation. The true and holy God, as we find throughout Scripture, from the very first pages of Genesis all the way to, to uh, the pages of the New Testament, we find that, that this true and holy God had been abandoned by His people, by those that He sought relationship with. And Judah... And Isaiah had abandoned their God. And so Isaiah talks about how thus uh, he warns of judgment upon the people. And Isaiah, like all the other prophets, he stresses themes of sin. He stresses themes of abandonment and judgment. But he presents salvation in a manner unlike any of the other prophets as a present and a future reality. And he says this in, in Isaiah chapter 12. Look, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. And so with Yahweh as the Deliverer, His people would become a light. And they would bring the same salvation to the most remote nations of the earth. Like Isaiah, there's Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets. They all echo this warning of judgment and the promise that, that God was in the business of restoring this relationship. One example is the prophet Haggai who was ministering to the Jews and, and they had just come back from the land of Babylon. And the community had suffered from a continued drought of God's blessing, from God's blessings. And the, the cause was the neglect of the temple. It was a neglect of their relationship with Him. And so they were wondering, why aren't we experiencing God's blessings in our life? And the problem was is that they were neglecting the relationship and the very place that God had designed them to enjoy and see that relationship lived out. And so in Haggai, he explains that that the lack of blessings that they were experiencing was uh, they, they had neglected their God. And so God once again declares, I am with you. After the people obeyed, Yahweh promised to bless them. And we also see these promises of salvation and restoration of the relationship throughout the books of poetry. And in all their great variety, the Psalms offer man's expression of worship and, and our praise to our God, Yahweh. Through thanksgiving, through lament, oftentimes expressions of, uh, of the Psalms, the, the words of poetry cry out everything that constitutes relationship with Him. But their focus is on man's worshipful response, which revolve around relationship and continue to be expressed uh, in uh, he, in terms of, he talks about sin. He talks about salvation, covenant, promises, blessings. Turn over to the pages of Proverbs. We see the same things. We find the relationship between man and God is manifested into daily relationships, not only between our God, but also how that lives out in our relationships with one another. But the beginning of wisdom, we're told, is to have a proper relationship with Yahweh in light of who He is. 
Even Song of Solomon echoes these things and reminds us of this. Because God established a relationship between Himself and between mankind. Out of that, the overflow of our relationship with Him, mankind is able to enjoy relationship with others. Especially when it's properly, when our relationship with Him is properly exhibited. The love song between Solomon and his young wife demonstrates most beautifully the relationship between a man and his wife. And so without shame, the song expresses the delight experienced in the sexual relationship between the two, as well as the natural tensions that the couple experiences. In our English Bibles, uh, the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. However, if you look at the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, uh, they actually arrange the books of their Bible in a different order. And in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament is completed with the books of First and Second Chronicles. And there we find accounts of the history of God's relationship with mankind. And First and Second Chronicles beautifully, beautifully exhibits and shows us that from Adam to the exiles to the return from Babylon, God was involved in a relationship with His people. And it accounts the history of this relationship with mankind. And the book of First and Second Chronicles focused on God's dwelling among His chosen people throughout their generations as a God who is worthy of praise. He is a God who is with them because of their obedience. And He blesses them because of their obedience. He is the God who is offended by sin. He judges it accordingly. But He's also a God who forgives those who repent. And First and Second Chronicles presents Yahweh as the one that His people should seek, and thus they will find Him rather than be abandoned and, and rejected when they abandon Him. And then we turn over to the pages of the New Testament and we see likewise. In the New Testament, we find God continuing the same story. It's the same God. Oftentimes we think of you know, the Old Testament is, uh, is a God of wrath and the New Testament is a God of love and relationship. But what we find as we look at all of Scripture is that throughout the Old and the New Testament, God has been about developing and restoring this relationship with mankind that was broken by our sin. As a race and also as in individual lives, we are at war with them, and God wants to restore that. And so, just like in the Old Testament, we find that in the New Testament, God is a God who hates sin and yet loves His people and seeks to restore that relationship. He hates sin, He judges it, but He's going about the business of restoring His relationship with mankind. If you remember, there was a lawyer who came to Jesus. What did the lawyer ask Jesus? He had a big question. Anybody remember what it was? What's that? What's the greatest commandment? I mean, if you wanted to sum up everything we just looked through, if you wanted to take the entire Old Testament, there's a lot in there, isn't there? And some of it's tough. So uh, wouldn't it be great just to have everything, one package? Jesus, what's, what's the greatest of all the commandments? Sum, sum the whole thing up for me. And so he asks him. And Jesus responded, summing up the entire Old Testament, and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Relationship. God seeks a relationship with each one of us. And the second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so on these two commandments, Jesus said, depend the whole law and the prophets. And so in the New Testament, God continues to reveal His intentions for the relationship that He initiated with mankind. We saw that sin broke the relationship that was begun by God. But God 
has provided the ultimate solution in His Son, Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers and Jesus Himself declared that the whole Old Testament pointed to and is fulfilled in Jesus. In His sufferings on the cross and His resurrection. And that relationship may be restored as repentance for forgiveness is proclaimed to all the nations. And so New Testament believers, both Jews and Gentiles, we, we now taste the blessings of the New Covenant. As we considered last week, the New Covenant was a covenant that God made with Israel. It was a promise that God said, this is what I've done in the past in the Old Covenant under the Mosaic Law, and I'm going to do something new. And that New Covenant was initiated when Jesus celebrated that Last Supper with His disciples. But, um, but this New Covenant was made to the Jewish people. But even though it's to the Jewish nation and they haven't experienced the full blessing of that New Covenant yet, we today as Gentiles get to experience many of the blessings that are a part of that New Covenant. And Hebrews 8 detailed some of those and how we're experiencing that even today. We taste of the blessings of the New Covenant. They're, they're indeed part, we are a part of the, the covenant community. And through the Gospel, they are, we are heirs of God's promises given to the patriarchs long ago. We partake in the blessings of God. We, and we see that God continues to comfort His people with the promise, again, that He is with us. Perhaps simple prepositions like with and in and before give us some of the greatest explanation of this wonderful relationship that we have with our God. And so the fact that believers are in Christ assures us of great security. It assures us of this incredible, beautiful relationship that we have with Him. And throughout the Scripture, the Creator asserts that He has initiated relationship with mankind. This relationship was, again, broken by sin, but but has been in constant state of restoration since the promise was first given to our first parents. When God said, the serpent will, 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 will uh, bruise the heel of, of the seed of the woman, but the seed will, the son will crush the head of the serpent. The Old Testament asserts that Yahweh has chosen those who are His. And with these, He keeps His covenant. He blesses those who are obedient, and He always fulfills His promises. And the fullest measure of this relationship has been revealed to mankind in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And, and that's the heart of the message of Hebrews. That in Christ, God is doing something that is far superior. Yahweh still invites men and women from all the nations to come and, and to seek His face. And so we've seen throughout the pages of Hebrews that, that, that God is has given to us Jesus Christ. And in all the things in this life that, that call to you, that say, hey, come, come worship here. Come back to this. Do you remember how fun life was before you were a follower of Jesus Christ? And Hebrews argues with us and shows us that, that there is nothing for us out there. That in Jesus, we have everything. And so he shows how Jesus is superior to the law. And in our, in our context, we can see how, how Jesus is superior to all the other things that compete for our attention, that compete for our allegiance, that compete for our worship. And we find that the relationship is better in Jesus Christ. 
And so as we turn to our attention to Hebrews chapter 9, I want you to see that, that all of Scripture, and that's why I've taken this long excursion through the Old Testament, I want you to see that, that all of the Scriptures tie together and they, they demonstrate the Lord's commitment to addressing our problem of sin and restoring our relationship with Him. As we've emphasized over and over, the message of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the high priest of the old, the high priests of the Old Testament. And as our high priest, Jesus makes a better has a better ministry. He's instituted a better covenant. We're in the middle of a section where he's talking about how Jesus makes a better offering, a better sacrifice. And again, when we say superior, when we say better, we're not saying that the old covenant was a mistake. Did God make a mistake in the Old Testament and go, whoops, didn't think that one through? Was the law evil? No, it wasn't. God was about restoring relationship. But as Hebrews has been showing us in chapter 8, the Old Covenant, it was just a shadow. It was preparatory. It was like engagement preparing for the wedding. It doesn't mean that engagement's a horrible thing. It just means that it's a different part of the relationship. But once you enter marriage, why, why go back to being engaged? It kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? And so that Old Covenant, that Old Covenant was um, a shadow of the real thing. The tent that had been made by the Israelites in the wilderness and the temple that followed it. They were a copy of the real thing that's in heaven. The ministry of the priests was just a foreshadowing of the ministry that Jesus would have today and in the New Covenant. And so as our High Priest, Jesus has a better ministry. He's instituted a better covenant. And He has made a better sacrifice. And all these Old Testament truths were pointing the way to Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, our attention needs to be riveted on Him. Well, let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 9. Before we read the text together, I, I just want to say, uh, first, first thing, I, I want to say congratulations. Um, you are here today, and that means that you have not abandoned ship. Uh, we, we have made it through eight chapters of Hebrews together. And, and so now we come to chapter 9, and, and as we do so, we're coming out of the woods. It, it's been some pretty deep thickets sometimes, hasn't it? We, we've had some passages where we go, what in the world is going on in this thing? In the, in the first eight chapters, we've dealt with some heavy warning passages. We've, we've come through the thicket of Melchizedek. Uh, you are now experts on the hypostatic union. And you are all qualified to teach a class about Old Testament covenants, right? At the least, you at least hopefully have a bit, a bit of a better grasp of a lot of these concepts and, and how they relate. But if there's only one thing that you walk away from in this entire series as we cover the book of Hebrews, I, I hope that it is the confidence that Jesus is superior to anything and to everything that the world offers to you. And I hope that you understand that when it comes to being in relationship with your Creator, this, this message that's conveyed in this theme throughout the entire Scripture, I, I hope you understand as we, as we discover it in Hebrews that there is nothing that can answer your sin problem and restore you to a right relationship with Him other than Jesus Christ, the One who provided the way by His, obe his own obedience to the cross. 
So congratulations, you, you've made it to chapter 9, and the remainder of this amazing book is now going to help us put a lot of these concepts we've been looking about, and this idea that Jesus is our high priest, it, it's, it's hopefully going to help us put that into action and to see how, how that calls us to obedience and a walk with Him. That calls us to faith. The main text is going to highlight, that we're going to look at today, it's going to highlight the message of one Old Testament book that I kind of skipped over in our survey, and it's the book of Leviticus. That exciting book of Leviticus. You love it, right? And uh, particularly in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, he's going to lay a foundation so that we can see how Jesus is providing a better offering. But, but I want you to see as we examine these verses is that even in the Old Testament, even in the shadows, even in the copy of the real thing, God was showing mankind that he wants to be approached. He wants to be in relationship with his creation and one of the most beautiful beautiful ways that he has showed that in the old testament was in a place called the tabernacle read with me verses one through five hebrews chapter nine starting in verse one verse to verse five now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so again, back in chapter 8, we saw that the Old Testament system revolved around worship that was centrally located in a place that was called the tabernacle, the tent. Later on, that was replaced by the temple when that was built by Solomon. And Hebrews makes the point that, that all of this, even the temple, which was a permanent structure, that all of that was just temporary. It was just a shadow of the things that were to come. Namely, it was a shadow of Jesus and His work as our high priest. And so here in these first five verses, Hebrews walks us through the tabernacle. It takes us on a little bit of a tour through the, the main two rooms of this building, this tent. And, and what he's doing is he's setting us up for the aha moment when he declares, but when Jesus appeared... But, but keep in mind that he's, he's not only setting us up for the rest of chapter 9, but he is also showing us that even in places like Leviticus, that exciting book that you read every morning because you just can't wait to get back to these... You're laughing. Even in places like Leviticus, God was in pursuit of relationship. God was dwelling in our midst. And so think with me through these verses as we walk into the tabernacle. Uh, both the tent set up by Moses as well as the, uh, the temple that was later built by Solomon had a similar layout based on God's design which was in heaven. This was just, again, a shadow. The real thing was in heaven. The real one was the one that Moses saw in heaven and, and then all this was based on what he saw there. If you will, this is kind of the blueprint for the real deal. 
There was an outer court where people would come with their offerings and they would, they would interact with the priests. But under the Old Testament system, you had to stop. If you were not of the tribe of the Levites, there's only a certain distance that you can go. There was a barrier. And you couldn't proceed, you could proceed no further than the court of the priests where they would make burnt offerings on behalf of the people. But on a daily basis, the Levitical priests were busy beyond that point and they were doing their work inside the tent itself. And if, as you walk into the tent, uh, you see that um, there were other pieces of furniture that were in there. There were other things that God was doing and other things that the priests were involved in. We could spend a lot of time discussing the significance of each item that was in the tabernacle, but that's not the focus of Hebrews chapter 9. He's just going to quickly introduce us to these things. Uh, and, 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 excuse me, he's going to quickly introduce us to the things that you would see as you walk through it. So, um, so we'll save that lesson for another time. But you first would see the, the lampstand made out of one piece of hammered out gold. It had six branches with seven lampstands in total. And the priests would, would constantly be in the business of, of filling the oil and making sure that the wicks were taken care of. Every night they would fill the oil and every morning they would re replenish the wicks. It was always to keep that first room well lit. Secondly, you would see the table and the, pre the bread of presence which would be set out. The first room was called the holy place. And only the priests were allowed to come in each day. It wasn't a place for the rest of the tribes of Israel. It was just for certain priests who were doing their work in that room. That room was called the holy place, but beyond that was a, another room called the most holy place. Uh, you might hear it oftentimes referred to as the holy of holies, which Hebrews describes containing two items. Uh, the first was the incense. Uh, the, main, the main altar of incense actually was actually in the, the first room in the the, the holy place, uh, and it sat just outside the curtain uh, before you would come into the most holy place. And what the word that Hebrews describes uh, of the, the incense that's inside the most holy place, it's actually a word that the Old Testament uses for the censer. It's kind of a container, a golden container that you put the incense in, and it would sit there on the altar of incense where the incense was kept. And then the censer, once a year, would go into the most holy place with the high priest. And so, you'll find some discussions about where that thing is supposed to be and why Hebrews places it in the most holy place. And I believe it's because he's talking about the actual censer that the, that the high priest would carry with him and it would fill the most holy place as he was, as he was sprinkling blood on the altar. It would fill that room with, with smoke and with incense. Once a year, he would go in and he would carry that with him. And of course, in the Holy of Holies was also what we call the Ark of the Covenant. Hebrews notes that there were three items that were contained inside the Ark of the Covenant. First, there was a, a golden jar that was filled with, with manna. And there was the uh, Aaron's staff and also the, the tablets uh, that contained the Ten Commandments. But only the high priest could enter this room, and he only went in each year one time. And that was on the Day of Atonement. He, Hebrews isn't going to dwell on each item that's in the temple or the tabernacle, but I think... But I think what Hebrews partially is doing is he's walking us through the tabernacle and he's giving us a little bit of a, a survey, a tour through this building. And there are two things that he highlights. George Guthrie brings this out in his, his class on, this course on the book of Hebrews. And uh, the first has been the point that, that we've been driving home all morning, that God wants to be approached. If 
Yet the entire design of the tabernacle, the entire design of, of later on the temple, what was it designed to look like? There was a, was a straight shot. And as, as you made your way in, there were barriers that you couldn't go past if you weren't of the, the proper, if you weren't the high priest or if you weren't of the priestly tribe. But, but there was access to God's throne, His physical throne among His people. And God initiated a program in which He was inviting His people into relationship. He was providing access to Himself. The beauty of the tabernacle, especially in the wilderness, is the Israelites, they they make their way out of Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai. They're on their way to the Holy Land. Uh, Every day that that the the cloud moved out, the people would break down the camp. And then they would follow the cloud, or if it was by night, they would follow this pillar of fire. They'd break down their tents. They'd come, and then the cloud would stop. And what would the people do? They'd set up camp. They'd pitch their tents. And the beauty of the whole process of the tabernacle is that in this process of the people journeying and, and picking up their tents and pitching it again, one of the most tangible expressions of God pursuing relationship, God showed that He wanted to dwell with His people. God pitched His tent right in the middle of their camp. He says, let's go on a camping trip. We're going to go out in the desert. And I'm going with you. I'm going to pitch my own tent right there. The tabernacle and the temple, they remind us of the reality that God dwells with His people. But Hebrews reminds us that the tabernacle, again, it was just a copy. It was, it was a more spectacular way than even, than, than in any more spectacular way than even Solomon's temple. God came down to us and He dwelt among us in the person of His Son. All this temple stuff and the tabernacle, that was just a copy of what was to come. And in Jesus, we find the real thing. God dwelling in our midst. God camping with us as we journey through this lifetime. And God is still showing us that He wants to be approached. He desires relationship. And He's provided a way most spectacularly in the person of His Son who is our High Priest. And so if there's anything you walk away from today as we journey through this whole Old Testament survey that we've done, and as we look at this uh, description of the tabernacle that Hebrews makes, if there's anything that you would take away from this, I want you to understand that God wants you to be in a relationship with Him. I want you to understand that there's an incredible barrier that's been put up against you. And that's your sin. You've rebelled against Him. You are at war with Him. All of us are at war with Him unless that relationship is somehow restored. And the tabernacle was this beautiful picture of God saying, I want to be with you. And so, I'm going to give you a way that you can approach Me. And in Jesus Christ, God has done something even more spectacular than just pitching a real tent in their midst. He came and He dwelt with us. He wants to be approached by you. And that sin hinders you from a relationship with Him. And so God says, tell you what, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to make a provision for you so that you can now come right into My presence. And that provision is Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with this God, if you're here today and you look at your sin in your life and you look at rebellion and go, there's absolutely no way that I could have that kind of relationship with my Creator because I I am a broken person. 
I'm a sinful human being. Woe is me, as Isaiah cried out. I'm a person of unclean lips. If you look at your life and you see all this sin and how the relationship has been shattered, don't leave here without understanding that the same thing that God did for the Israelites in building this tabernacle, this was just a picture so that you today could know that He wants to have that kind of relationship with you. And you don't have to go out into the desert and go through a temple and find a high priest to go into the Holy of Holies for you because Jesus Christ has already done that and He has made access to you. Amen? There's a second observation that we can make about Hebrews chapter 9 and what it shows us. Again, God wants us wants to be approached. But, but don't leave here without understanding that God is very particular about how He's approached. He is the one who determines the barriers. In the Old Testament, they had you can see there's a wall all the way around the tabernacle. There's only certain people that could go inside those fences. In the, in the temple grounds, there was the court of the Gentiles. Yay, we get to go be a part of it, right? And then there's a fence. Sorry, you can't go past here. You're a Gentile. The women could go in. And, and so there was this court of the women. Jewish women could enter this certain section, but then the women were kept out and, and only the men could go in representing their families. And so there was a place where the men would go in, they would make their sacrifices, but then... You had, the men had to stop. And there was a place where the priests could go and they did their work. And then a certain number of the priests were able to go inside the holy place and its rooms and the work of the temple itself. And again, only one time every year, there was one individual, the high priest, that could go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. There were barriers. And part of that system was to show us that God says, I want to be approached, but I'm going to create a system that you have to understand, and you don't go outside of my system. There were a couple occasions in the Old Testament, we've talked about this in Hebrews before, where there were a couple individuals, what did they do? Remember King Saul? He wasn't at the tabernacle, but he said, you know, I'm going to do the work of the priest. And he starts making a sacrifice. And God rejected him. Later on, uh, another one of the, uh, the kings, I think it was Uzziah. Uzziah? Isaiah? Hezekiah? Uzziah? Yep, so during David's day, yeah. And then later on, one of the other priests, he, he took the censer and he started making one of the offerings. And, and he, he broke out in leprosy because he went outside the barriers that God said. So God says, there's a way that we're going to do this. I want to be approached, but I am particular. And, and we have to understand that God is the one who establishes the system. And the world would love for you to believe that you can approach God however you want. You can come to God and, and, and however, you, however you want to worship Him is just fine. I had a friend growing up who said, you know, I don't need to go to church and be a part of that whole thing. I, just, I, I go up on the mountains and I worship God in nature. I have a relationship and she said, it's, it's just beautiful. I, I love seeing God in nature. And so I, this whole Jesus thing, I want to understand that God says, I gave you creation to point you to Me, but, but that doesn't bring you to Me. That does not restore the relationship. The world would love you to think that you can approach Him however you want. You can choose whatever religion you want. You can, you can choose any Scriptures that you want because certainly the world thinks all of those ways lead to the same God, right? Aren't there many roads to the top of the mountain? That's the mantra of today. But look at verses 6-10. through 10. He continues and he says, These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. 
not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. He's talking about that Old Testament system. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. You see, when God gave the plan for the tabernacle and He provided the law detailing how the priests were to carry out their work in the Old Testament, God was showing, He said, I am holy. I am completely separate and other than anything you've ever experienced. And, and I am not to be treated flippantly. And my friends, we don't get to make up the rules about how we restore our relationship with Him. Verses 6 and 7 detail how God set up these barriers for the Israelites. He invited relationship. He invited His people to approach Him. But that approach was specific. We don't get to make up the rules. One of the barriers to a relationship with our Creator is that sin has to be atoned for. We don't get to just treat sin as if it's nothing. As if it didn't break the relationship. It did create a barrier between us and our God and put us at war with Him. And so in the Old Testament, there was a temporary program in which animals were sacrificed over and over and over again by the Levitical priests. And I want you to understand, there was blood everywhere. This, this wasn't... I mean, you see this and go, isn't that pretty? There was blood. This was gruesome. You walk into a butcher shop, have you ever, have you ever seen a cow being slaughtered? It smells funny. It's different. It's gross. There's blood. That's nothing compared to what would have been happening here. There would have been streams of blood flowing out on certain days. It was a picture of how awful sin is. The sin is, is horrible. And it was always this horrible, gruesome reminder that sin did that. Sin brought death. It broke our relationship. And, and death was the penalty. And so innocent animals were offered to atone for the sins of the people. The blood of the animals covered the sin until such a time that God would provide a permanent solution to our sin problem. And again, with spectacular glory, Jesus made a way. He became the Lamb. The Gospels describe how Jesus died a gruesome, bloody death. And again, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't just a guy on a cross wrapped in a towel. It was horrible. It was gruesome. People turned their heads away from it. But worse than all of the bloody death that He went through, He bore the weight of your sin. All the guilt, all the shame, all the horribleness of everything that your sin encompasses and all the wrath that, that should be poured out on you was born, all of it, by His Son. Jesus Christ. He bore the weight of all hor the horrible blight of sin that has separated the human race from our Creator. And at His ascension into heaven, we're told that He went into the, the Holy of Holies. He didn't just go into the, the copy. He went into the real thing. 
He went into the very throne room, the very presence of our God, and there He has made access. Not just for the priests, not just for the Jews, not just for the men. Jesus has provided access in which all of us who have a relationship with Him can now approach this God. Hebrews is later going to tell us that we can boldly approach the throne. It's not just a song. You can boldly approach it. You can go right through the holy place, that first room, and go right into the Holy of Holies in heaven. Today, right where you're sitting today, as you pray, you have access to this God because of what Jesus Christ provided for you if you have responded in faith. And if you have that relationship with Him, your approach is now accessible. God is accessible to you. And He has provided a glorious means for allowing us to experience the relationship. And so we see that Jesus fulfilled the law. And the copy is no longer needed. The offerings are no longer needed to be taken to Jerusalem. Those things could never perfect our conscience. They could never lead us into worship that is according to the Spirit and truth. You always had to go to a physical place. And Jesus has replaced that old system and He ushers us into the presence of God. The curtains have been torn down that kept everyone out. The walls no longer remain. But let us never forget that God is particular and He is to be treated as holy. It's not for me to change the Gospel. It's not for me to say I don't like that part of the message and so I'm going to preach something different. Something that's more to our liking. It's not for us to excuse and to embrace sin. And in Christ, we have something that is far superior than everything else. Verse 11 begins with the phrase, but when Christ appeared. And so as we remember that God wants us to be approached, let us never forget that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And He is the one who leads us into something far greater. I think there's a couple ways that we make a substitute and we reject the access that God's given. God provides access to us. He, he, he invites us to approach Him. There's a couple ways that I see, see us off, often rejecting that. Oftentimes we choose just a completely different way. We choose to embrace our sin. We choose to reject Jesus Christ. And, and there are those of you who are not yet in relationship with Him. And my plea to you is to recognize this incredible gift that Jesus has given. We're going to celebrate that here in just a moment for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ by remembering what He did for us. But, but I think there's a, another way that oftentimes we find people who have rejected this access and they don't have this approach. And that's that we know it all right here. There's a lot of people who go to churches every Sunday who say, oh, Jesus died for me. Yeah, I get that. Jesus rose from the grave. I, f- I firmly believe that. You might even say, yeah, He died for sin. But you have personally never come to the point in your life where you have said, my sin. You've never personally come to the point where you've said, I, I am helpless. I want this relationship. I need this relationship. And there are a lot of people that go to church that have never come to a relationship with Jesus Christ because all they've figured out are the facts. They know the Gospel. They know the truths of God's Word. They can recite to the Old Testament and the New Testament and tell you all about these things, but they have never 
trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins because they've never been broken by their sin. It's never been a big deal. And so they continue on. Understanding the facts. Having good theology. Being able to recite Bible verses. And they've gone through Awana and they've gone through the youth group and they go to church every Sunday morning. And they will stand before God and He will say, you have no access here. You have no relationship with Me. Because you never dealt with your sin. And I think there are many who are deceived. Hebrews has given us several warnings as we've gone through this amazing book. We're still coming to one more. There's a big one. And those warnings are are, are for many who say, oh, yeah, I believe. But they only believe the facts. They only know. But they've never believed in Jesus. Jesus is the way. And He's the truth. And He's the life. The amazing truth of Scripture is that God desires relationship. And He has has made access to Himself and invited us to approach Him nowhere more beautifully than in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the message we discover in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to ask the men to come forward as we celebrate in communion today. And understand that as we do so, we are... We are remembering what Jesus did. We're remembering what He accomplished on the cross. Please be seated.